Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, welcome to FYI, Arc's Four Year Innovation Podcast. Today, we're joined by uh, two special guests. We have Simon Moores, who's the Managing Director at Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, and Vivas Kumar, who's a principal at Benchmark and is also currently enrolled at Stanford Business School. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Sam. And today we're going to be discussing electric vehicles, which we discuss quite often, but a piece that often gets left out of the discussion is the supply chain. We know that the battery is the most important piece of the vehicle from a cost perspective. And because of that, equally important is where you're getting all of the resources for that. So do you want to just talk about benchmark mineral intelligence a little bit and give some context for this whole discussion? Yeah. So benchmark was founded six years ago in our sixth year now. Um, to specifically collect data, price data and, and other market sensitive data on the lithium ion battery supply chain. So this means anywhere starting with the lithium or cobalt mine all the way through to the cathode and anode stages of the supply chain and then eventually ending at the battery cell. So our goal really was to build up data where data didn't exist at the time and we created that through a series of methodologies, building team out so we can travel around the world to meet all the key actors in, in the space. And it's become really powerful. It's, it's not just being used by mining companies, electric vehicle makers, battery makers, but it's also now being used by governments. Um, a special moment for us was myself and Vivas were at the White House on the, uh, the end of last year to discuss this. So it's, it's been a fun ride and it doesn't seem to be stopping even, even during the coronavirus. I think that's super true. Even just this morning, uh, China decided that they would extend subsidies for two years for electric vehicles. And so I think we can just kick things off. I think, you know, China and the U.S. both pretty aggressive with electric vehicles, but not every single electric vehicle is the same. And I heard a wonderful talk from Vivas, if you want to dive into this, what's the difference between some of these battery packs? Not all batteries are created the same. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we find is that your average consumer in the USA or in Europe is more demanding in terms of range, in terms of where they can recharge, how quickly they can recharge. And that translates directly into the quality of the battery cells that are used for the electric vehicle, which then translates into the quality of the battery materials that are used. So for example, the prevailing cell chemistries in electric vehicles in the USA and Europe are things like NCA or NCM. So that's nickel, cobalt, aluminum, or nickel, cobalt, manganese. And there are different proportions around which these materials are used. But if you go to China, there's a broader mix of what the cathode chemistries can be. And LFP, so lithium iron phosphate, is much more common as a cathode chemistry. And that's just reflective of the fact that LFP is a cheaper material 
traditionally a cheaper material than NCA or NCM. It thus far does not have the performance characteristics of an NCA or an NCM, although those who are working on the next generation of LFP will argue that next generation will catch up. But the performance characteristics of LFP are well suited to that of the Chinese consumer. Going forward, we're going to see more and more of this kind of differentiation by application, this kind of differentiation by geography. And, you know, you mentioned my, my talk at Stanford, which is free and available for anybody to look up on YouTube. One of the points that I made on that talk was that 10 years from now, what we're going to see is individual companies. So let's take your Tesla or let's take your BMW. They're going to be differentiating chemistries even internally based on application and based on geography. We've already seen the first step of this, where Tesla earlier this year publicly announced that they were going to be working on an LFP battery pack that is specific to their China Model 3s. And this was, a, this was seen as a big departure from their strategy of using NCA cells mostly for their vehicles worldwide. But in the future, you know, we're going to see that go even one level deeper, which is even in the USA, for example, I as a driver have a certain profile in terms of the number of miles I drive per day and the fact that I have to mostly charge at Tesla superchargers and at charge points versus there are others who drive three or four miles per day and they charge once every 15 days at their home charger. And there will be differentiation even between the chemistries in both of our cars here in the USA. I think that's a great point. I mean, especially just on the form factor diversification. Right now, you've got different markets and different use cases. But I think, you know, going forward, as everything really goes electric, you're going to have those micromobility options, potentially neighborhood electric vehicles that aren't even designed for the highway. And it makes sense that they would have a different battery chemistry so that they could be price competitive and appealing. So then I guess we'll, we'll dive to the NCM because that's the one that's been getting a lot of hype recently, especially cobalt's been on everyone's mind, higher nickel content for more energy density. Can you walk us just through those elements where they're mined broadly and kind of what the supply chain looks like for each of them? Yeah, so cobalt is the highest profile. It doesn't seem to be going away, even though comparatively compared to lithium and nickel and graphite anode in the battery, there's hardly any cobalt used. Uh, it is a very important element because it's, it adds a, a stabilizing factor to the chemistry. And therefore, it's important, and we believe uh, at Benchmark that cobalt will always be needed in a lithium-ion battery for the foreseeable future. It's just in lower quantities. So cobalt's critically important in electric vehicles. The other thing at Benchmark we always say is that there won't be an electric vehicle industry without DRC Congo cobalt. Over 65% of cobalt comes from the DRC. It's just the way it's geologically distributed around the world. You can't get away from that. All the deposits outside of DRC are much smaller. The electric vehicle industry needs volume. So that's a challenge in itself to, to help that industry in the DRC grow sustainably, more transparently. That helps the local communities rather than punishes them for, for maybe trying to build sources elsewhere, although you're probably going to need a bit, a bit of both. So Cobalt's got the, will always have those issues because you're not going to get the volume outside of of, of the DRC. Lithium is the other big one that we get a lot of questions on and lithium is mined in South America from brine operations and it's extracted as a hard rock in traditional mining operations in Australia but then that gets shipped to China and converted into chemicals. So when you start piecing together lithium you kind of realize how inefficient 
that industry is in a sense as well, because the mines are spread so far around the world and the, the chemical plants, the majority is, is processed within China and, and chemicals. So over half actually lithium chemicals are, are made within China, even though no mining, hardly any mining takes place there. So with lithium and cobalt alone, you've got very dispersed kind of supply chains all kind of flowing into China and then really back out of China into the US. And I know there's something Vivas has, has worked a lot on supply chain maps and how the industry kind of is evolving, but I don't know what your thoughts are, Vivas. Yeah, I think if you go back to the initial question that Sam asked, which was about like the very beginning of this podcast where Sam asked about USA versus China, it's what China as a country and companies that are involved in China have done very effectively is centralizing and localizing the supply chain within the country. So Simon mentioned that about 50% of lithium chemicals are made in China, but the numbers are pretty similar for cobalt chemicals and for nickel chemicals. They're even higher, actually, for some of the other sort of more esoteric battery chemicals, specialty chemicals that are used in battery manufacturing. If you look at battery cell capacity, what Benchmark is tracking is that approximately two-thirds of global battery cell capacity today is in China. And even 10 years from now in 2029, even though we're going to be growing to over two terawatt hours of battery capacity, two-thirds of that will still be geographically within China. So, I mean, the impetus for this has just been that the electric vehicle market is growing exponentially fast, and China has done an extremely effective job. Companies involved in China have done an extremely effective job of centralizing the supply chain so that more of that value capture can happen within their borders. And this is some of the work that Simon and I have been doing. You know, Simon is based in London. I'm based here in the U.S. And with European governments, with North American governments, just having the conversation that a robust electric vehicle industry, a robust lithium-ion battery industry is not just about the automotive OEM. It's about bringing the entire supply chain on board because any bottleneck or any sort of geographic, geopolitical issues that pop up in the supply chain will compromise the end goal of getting millions of electric vehicles on the road to get clean air worldwide. Wow, I think that's a, a great point. And then I mean, just to contextualize it, right, we're talking about two terawatt hours of capacity. Where are we today relative to that? Yeah, so right now we're at about 450 gigawatt hours of global capacity, of global lithium-ion battery capacity. Now, rewind back five years to 2015, we're at 60 gigawatt hours of capacity. So the point we try and make is that the, the battery industry has grown five times of between four and five times in in the last five years in terms of capacity and the supply as well. On Vivas's number, by 2030, we've just up literally today we've just updated our gigawatt hours number for 2030, and we're at 2,481 gigawatt hours of battery capacity in the pipeline. So this means 130 of these battery mega factories are being built over the next 10 years, really over the next sort of five years, are being established and then being expanded throughout the the time horizon out to 2030, 2.4 terawatt hours. 70% of that's in China, 9% of that is in the USA, and 17% of that is in Europe. So that's your latest data. And I have to ask, does that include Musk's announced terawatt hour ambitions from Tesla? What we are tracking is factories that have been announced thus far. So when Elon goes out and says that Tesla is going to go out and do a terawatt hour on their own, that's great, and we want that to happen. But specifically for Tesla, we've only tracked those that are publicly announced. So Nevada Gigafactory, 
Shanghai Gigafactory, Berlin Gigafactory, along with what they publicly stated as the production targets for those factories. Now, obviously, we would be thrilled to see to see more Tesla or even just more battery factories in general, no matter who the companies are, for that number to keep going higher. And then just to dive back onto the specific mineral level, for cobalt, a lot of the mining is done in the Congo, but cobalt's also a byproduct of nickel and copper mining. What type of production could we get out of expansion from nickel and copper mines? Yeah, I've got our latest numbers on that. So actually linking, you're right, linking the raw material to the, the those battery plants. So our capacity forecast for lithium-ion batteries is, is 2,481 gigawatt hours. Our demand forecast is actually 1,900 gigawatt hours. So the, the build-out of battery plants is actually going a bit faster than, say, with the demand expectations, which is good news for electric vehicles. It means the battery, the volume of batteries will be there. We can talk about quality of batteries a bit later on. Then, of course, will the raw materials be there because it's easier to build a battery plant than it is to build a nickel, cobalt, lithium mine. At 1.9, 1,900 gigawatt hours of demand by 2030, of which we expect about 90% of this to come from electric vehicles, bear in mind. So it's all been driven by EVs. Nickel will have to expand to from 118,000 tons of chemical used in batteries this year, sorry, in 2019, to 1.3 million tons. So nickel should be able to do that just because it's a 2 million ton industry at the moment. The blueprint to make millions and millions of tons of nickel, get it out of the ground and get it into the market is there. It just uh, has to be tweaked in a sense. So nickel we don't see as too much of a long-term issue necessarily. Cobalt will have to go from 65,000 tons to 300,000 tons. So we actually think that's doable as well, providing you're getting the majority of the cobalt from the big mines in the DRC. They're going to have to sort the social problem with getting cobalt from the DRC. The industry will have to sort that. Governments will have to help where they can. But that DRC cobalt is going to be needed to get to 300,000 tons. And lithium is an interesting one because lithium was 300,000 tons of chemical last year. It's going to have to go to 1.8 million tons. Now, for lithium to get to, to get to that, there's no geological constraint. There's no shortage of these minerals in the ground. It's actually building the supply chain and getting them out the ground in the right quantities and the right quality. These are we're not talking about commodities here. We're talking about speciality chemicals. It's quantity and it's quality. That's going to be a real challenge because lithium thinks in the hundred thousand tons. It doesn't think in the millions of tons. So we still. Well, I, I mean, I believe, Vibus, you might have a comment on this, but lithium, I think, is still the, the biggest challenge of these raw materials to get to that kind of scale. Lithium is also the biggest challenge because even just with the nomenclature of lithium-ion batteries, no matter what chemistry you go with, you're going to need lithium chemicals. And you're going to need a high-purity specialty chemical to bring on the type of ranges, the types of, of longevity of vehicles that we're seeing. So when Simon says, that nickel won't be a problem to get up and running as compared to the size of the industry today. Let's just say that our prediction is wrong and that it is an issue to get nickel up and running. Well, what you'll see happening in the industry is that the industry will start to shift naturally away from high nickel concentrations in their battery cell chemistry and over to something like an LFP because of the fact that phosphates and iron are readily available. But once again, that is, an, that is an industry, that is a cell chemistry that is dependent upon high purity, high quality lithium chemicals. And the absence of investment in lithium chemicals is for us 
the most concerning element of what's happening in the battery supply chain right now. So then to dive into lithium, can you just walk us through? I know, you know, there's a lot about lithium quality, carbonate versus hydroxide, political issues with mining. I think it's super fruitful discussion to go, to go into there and just walk our listeners through how to actually understand how complex lithium is. Absolutely. So what Simon mentioned earlier was there's two primary resources of lithium out there. So there's something called the lithium triangle in South America, which encompasses a part of Bolivia and Argentina and Chile. And these are where brine ponds happen. And the simplest way to think about brine ponds is you're essentially pumping out salty groundwater and you are extracting the salts from that groundwater. So lithium is not the only salt that's readily available. There's also magnesium. There's also potash that comes out of the brines in South America. And then there's traditional hard rock mining in Australia. And what happens is both of these products, the lithium atoms that come out of brine and hard rock, go through specialized chemical flow sheets to produce for the battery industry, either lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. Traditionally, lithium carbonate has been the chemical of choice for lithium ion batteries because traditionally it's been cheaper to produce carbonate than hydroxide, just given how the industry has been structured in the past. Because of the fact that consumers, especially in Western markets, have been demanding more range and better battery quality and better battery health, there's been a shift towards higher nickel chemistry, as we've discussed. And from a chemistry standpoint, lithium hydroxide is better suited for the manufacturing of high nickel battery cell chemistries than lithium carbonate. So the industry is swinging towards a more 50-50 split between carbonate and hydroxide manufacturing in 2025. The challenge is in continuously finding and developing both new resources at the mining level, so either at the brine or the spodumene level, as well as developing new chemical facilities to pair with these resources to produce those specialty chemicals. Now, just for, just for the sake of illustration, finding and developing a new mine can take anywhere from 10 years to multiple decades. Building a chemicals facility can take anywhere in order to get supply at a high enough quality to be used at a large scale for Western automotive manufacturing will typically take about five years between when construction has begun to when that, that plant is at full ramp to be producing for Western automotive customers. And we can keep going down the line over here where that chemical will go into a cathode manufacturing facility. The cathodes will be used in cell manufacturing before they're ultimately used in vehicle manufacturing. At every single step of this supply chain, there's a different timeline and there's a different cost and there's a different risk profile associated with it. So from the standpoint of an automotive buyer, right? In my previous life, I was a buyer at Tesla of all of these materials. And all I cared about was how can I get the best quality materials for the lowest price possible? And how can I go out and have conversations with suppliers to do so? It quickly became apparent to me, though, that there's going to be severe dislocation in multiple points in the supply chain. And we had to find ways not only to go out and buy the material, but also convince companies to invest in, in you know, scales that never invested before for these types of specialty chemicals in the battery industry. The other problem is that independent investors themselves are reluctant to move into investing deep in the supply chain because while there is you know while we can sit here and argue about the fact that there's a high IRR opportunity how there's a lot of value creation potential especially the specialty chemical step 
there's also huge risk associated with investing in some of these geographies, investing in in some of these technologies that have not evolved in 50 years in mining and the chemicals industry, even just the risks associated with investing in the supply chain can justify an hour-long conversation. Simon, do you want to add to that? The only thing I'd add is the investment sector, the actual industry, the active supply chain, it's never going to match up. Investment will be low, it will be too slow, then it'll be too quick, then it will be too slow again, and, and it's really inefficient money. And I just think that the biggest problem for this space is not only the, the lack of capital, but actually the timing of the money as well. Because essentially, you've got 10 years of, of extreme volatility. You've got extreme growth. There's something Vibas said to me middle of last year. He said, for those that have the appetite for investment risk, outsized returns significantly outsized returns for investors are there for the taking but it's got to be longer term money it's got to be higher risk money uh, because this industry has to build 10x in eight years effectively and i think what you said we've seen throughout history is the boom bust cycles of commodity investing generally i think vivas if you can speak about it what type of contracts are being signed i know we see from vw these massive, massive contracts over super long duration. Is that the typical type of contract being signed? Or what's it look like from the buyer's side? Until about three years ago, that was fairly atypical, especially in the lithium industry, where most of the purchasing was happening sort of on a quarterly basis. There were long established relationships between the lithium specialty chemicals manufacturers and just one step up the supply chain. So usually it's the cathode manufacturers. And there was a consistent demand for this product. And generally speaking, the major companies in the West that were responsible for producing lithium units were not seeing lithium as their primary value-creating business unit. They were usually within a larger chemicals conglomerate, and you know, lithium was just there to produce sort of side cash flow when the real money was coming from potash or from other specialty chemicals. What happened was Western automakers started to see that as they were making more announcements for larger and larger numbers of electric vehicles that they're going to be putting out on the roads that with lithium being an irreplaceable element across lithium-ion batteries and the impending shortages of lithium chemicals that were coming up, that they would be left behind if they didn't secure their lithium supply as soon as possible. So if you're seeing big news out there of automakers going out and especially in lithium securing supply and making huge splashy announcements of multi-year-long deals. Number one, that's fairly new for this industry. It's been happening for the past couple of years, but for about 25 years before that, this was material that was bought on a weekly basis in China and outside of China on a quarterly basis. But secondly, they're doing it because they want to secure their supply against the backdrop of impending shortages and in an effort to not renege on their promises for the numbers of vehicles they're going to put on the road. And then one other thing that you'd mentioned you know, at ARC, we focus solely on innovation. So anytime you say lack of innovation, alarm bells go off. You said in mining, there hasn't really been any major innovation in decades. Is there a potential? Are there people working on things? Or is it still kind of just the tried and true methods? The metric for success in mining in terms of investability is cash flow generation and it's, it's de-risking. And so unfortunately, what happens is this de-risking attitude results in the continued use of process flow sheets 
that have been around for about 50 years. And while they get the job done in terms of turning out material that's used in the industry today, they are highly inefficient. And increasingly, there are concerns about the carbon footprint of the supply chain resulting from the lack of innovation from these process flow sheets. Now, I won't, I won't sit there and say that nobody has innovated, right? Because I, I just don't think that that's fair to say. The innovation happens in small ways. It happens in the reagents that are used. It happens in tiny elements of the chemical process flow sheet. But there has not yet been a company that has come out and said, we're going to completely overhaul the flow sheet. We are going to get rid of brine ponds forever. We are going to get rid of these large mines in the ground forever and executed on it successfully. So one of the reasons why investors are, are trigger shy in going out and investing in those types of companies is because of the fact that unless they see it happen, unless they see something like that, a process flow sheet that doesn't rely on brine ponds being fully de-risked, they don't have the appetite to go in. And one of the things that both Simon and I advocate whenever we see investors in general is for this industry to move forward, some of this risk needs to be taken. New mines and new geographies, and not just those in traditional geographies, need to be invested in. New technologies need to be invested in. And you know, new management teams need to be invested in because we're going to be running the same process flow sheets and coming up with the exact same issues that the mining industry has seen in the last 50 years, unless that kind of investment is made. And so where are some of those projects being taken place right now? There has been recent news related to innovation in the battery materials area. And once again, if we just focus on lithium, I think about two months ago, we saw news that Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which counts people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and multiple you know, trailblazing innovation luminaries across the world as their investors, has invested in a company called Lilac Solutions which is going after this whole idea of eliminating brine ponds forever. And just to understand why this is important, if we think about the idea of brine ponds being groundwaters pumped out onto these, you know, onto these large surfaces and the sun is allowed to evaporate out the water so that the salt can be removed over a period of about two years, not only is that tremendously inefficient, it also has an environmental footprint that is just staggering. So brine ponds in Chile, for example, are bigger than the island of Manhattan to produce 40,000, 50,000 tons per year of lithium. And a company like Lilac, but also other companies that we follow and other processes that we follow. So EnergyX is another company that we follow. The Bateman process is something that has been trialed in multiple different lithium junior mining companies. They're going out and they're saying, why are we having the environmental footprints that we do? We can eliminate brine ponds forever by doing direct lithium extraction. And we expect to see that kind of investment also happened in nickel and cobalt. There has been renewed interest in investing in the process flow sheets of these types of companies. It's been mostly driven by the general surge in interest for ESG investing. All right. So I think we've, we've covered the mineral side of things pretty well here. But then obviously, as you said earlier in the podcast, you have the mineral extraction, but then it needs to be processed. And I think it was close to 75% of that is being done in China. And that seems to align pretty well with their country goal. They're trying to leapfrog. They haven't been an exporter of vehicles for the last 100 years. They kind of missed the wave on the internal combustion engine, but they're really trying to capitalize on the electric vehicle front. Is all of that concentration a risk? And how are both companies and governments working to diversify the supply chain? Yeah, so the China story is quite interesting because it actually 
it had the blueprint to make these chemicals and the blueprint wasn't from lithium ion batteries. So for example, it didn't have cobalt naturally. So it had to import cobalt from the DRC, make the chemicals domestically, and it was made for aerospace industries. Lithium didn't have the lithium domestically in the ground in high enough quality and high enough quantities. Had to go to Australia, make the chemicals domestically within China for the ceramics and glass industry. Graphite anode, it does have its own graphite domestically. So actually it's one of the raw material, battery raw materials that it has in, in abundance. I guess the point I'm making is that China got a bit lucky with having all these skills and capacities to make the chemicals from other industries. And that's a result of the size of its economy and maybe a little bit of outsourcing from other economies like the US to, to lower cost, traditionally lower cost places like China uh, to create these kind of global supply chains, which I believe now are changing. And what, Ch what China has done the last seven years, seven to eight years, so this is way before people talking about electric vehicles in a big way, it's recalibrating uh, both capacity and skills to actually make these chemicals for the battery space. For example, I was speaking five and a half, five years ago to a, a cobalt producer, and he's been a cobalt trader all his, his life. And, and he said to me, it was strange because a couple of years ago, China started investing in cobalt chemical capacity way beyond what it needed. That was government money, obviously, but it the point was they were very forward-looking, knowing that this electric vehicle thing was definitely going to happen within China at a minimum, mainly because of the air quality problems they've got and because they had the technology themselves. And so what China's done is it's ensured that all the trade flow arrows go into China before they make a product and then they go over to the US or to Europe. What the US needs to do is replicate that. So not have the trade flow arrows go to Asia and then to the US, but make sure they're going to the US first. And the key is you don't need the raw materials or the mass volume of raw materials mined in the USA, but you can build the other links in the supply chain to ensure those arrows point towards your country. And for me, that's the biggest challenge the USA has. And that means building battery plants, it means building cathode plants, it means building anode plants. And outside of Tesla, you know, we've recently seen some other companies commit to some of these battery plants. So are you starting to see things move in that direction or are we still pretty much at square zero here? Definitely things are moving in that direction. You've seen the US, we've seen planned, uh, smaller planned battery plants from SK Innovation, LG Chem are expanding in Michigan, but you don't see enough is the point. The US has seven battery mega factories in the pipeline at the moment under construction or in the planning phase. China has 97. So you're going to need a lot more. At the moment, the, the US is wholly reliant on the Tesla Gigafactory going from 37 gigawatt hours like it is today to 58 gigawatt hours, then uh, jumping again to over 100 gigawatt hours. You need battery plants the size of the Gigafactory. You need 10 of them in the US. Um, at the moment, the scale is not big enough to turn the dial on those trade, those trade arrows. But the direction's moving. It's just very, very slow. And to add on to Simon's point, it's not just the fact that the USA needs more battery gigafactories, more battery megafactories at the size of what Tesla has done in Reno. It also needs cathode capacity to feed into, that, into those megafactories. It needs the specialty chemicals, plants that can do lithium hydroxide, lithium carbonate, nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, cobalt hydroxide to be here in the US. And that capacity today does not exist at the level that it needs to exist. 
And those trade errors will still be going through China and coming to the US if only battery factories are invested in. That's interesting. And so then is this going to be largely driven by processing companies who see this opportunity and come to the US? Or are there government regulations that need to change? And what what do you see from different players in this field? Are they looking at the US as an opportunity or has it not struck them yet? My opinion on this, Vivas, you might have a different one, but it'll be interesting, is that industry leads this, government supports it. So you need the biggest chemical players in the US to step up and say, we're going to make cathode at huge volumes, not 30,000 tons a year over two sites, but 200,000 tons a year, 300,000 tons a year, order of magnitude bigger than what the industry is used to actually producing. You need them to step up and say, we can do this, we're going to do this, because then you stick a, a cathode megafactory or a cathode gigafactory in the US, you stick five of them in there, all of a sudden, that's a lot of buying power for raw materials. And then it kind of, it's, it creates this, this vacuum that ensures that that industry grows. And of course, if you have big, because you have the, the battery capacity, the cathode and the anode capacity can sit nicely in that ecosystem. Then of course, you've already got the auto industry here. They're going to need a hell of a lot of batteries. So it kind of is completing that circle. Of course, a big part of that as well, which is the afterlife of batteries, you're talking about battery recycling. Now, that is another huge business opportunity for anybody that can solve the problem of recycling, well, let's say hundreds of gigawatt hours of batteries a year, but in 10 years. That's a hell of a lot of batteries. So that's another big opportunity. But the goal is, even if you don't have the raw materials or everything you need, let's say, it's good to have domestic raw material in, in some ways. But even if you don't have that, if you've got the, the key links in the middle of the supply chain, you can create this ecosystem. And the government can help oil the wheels with various things like cheap loans and deregulation of, of, of government land. But the reality is, if the industry says we're going to do it, the government are going to support it because it's jobs. Especially now, since the, the, it seems like the world is ending, that jobs and new jobs in a new industry, a 21st century industry like electric vehicle supply chain is, is kind of a no-brainer. And then I guess before we wrap things up, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about the battery supply chain that you know you can just come out right now and and flatly set set the record straight? It will not materialize by itself. It is going to need significant investment and the coordination of multiple governments and companies across the entire supply chain to work. I think that there's been there's been this sort of myth out there of if VW, if GM, if Ford, if Tesla go out and announce that we're going to have 10 million, 20 million, 30 million electric vehicles in the next five to 10 years, the supply chain will just show up by itself because there's so much demand out there. And that is fundamentally just not true, given the discussion that we've had today about dislocated timeline, about risks to investing, and about just the lack of innovation in the space in general. My favorite misconception is that don't bother investing in lithium-ion batteries because the new technology will beat it, will come out and replace it. One thing I say about that is lithium-ion batteries, they're getting cheaper. So the average cost of a lithium-ion battery cell, at the moment, automotive-grade lithium-ion battery cell is $125 per kilowatt hour, our midpoint average. Now, you can get that lower than 100 at the moment from one producer, but that's a good number, 125. So that was 283 years ago. So that shows you kind of how much batteries have dropped. So number one, lithium-ion batteries are getting cheaper. They're getting more abundant. You talked about, we've talked about the 130 battery mega factories in the pipeline for 2030. There was three five years ago. So that's two. 
they're getting more abundant and they're getting better. The lithium-ion battery is going far further than people realize for two reasons. One is the cathode is, is packing more energy, it's becoming more energy dense with, let's say, uh, different elements or different ratios of, of, of minerals and elements they can put into the cathode. And also you've got the battery management system of, of these electric vehicles, the software meeting the chemical engineering that is taking these batteries much, much further than people really realized. So the reason lithium-ion is here to stay for a long time is because they're getting cheaper, they're becoming more abundant, and they're getting better. And I think from a fundamental technological perspective, they're probably three good things. And then I know my listeners would be upset if I didn't ask this. Right now, we've been talking all about the demand from electric vehicles, which you know our research suggests that's where the mass of demand will come from. Have you guys also looked at utility-scale energy storage, and does that move the needle at all? Absolutely. So utility-scale energy storage does move the needle, and it is equally as important. And the best-case scenario is that Simon mentioned earlier that 90% of the battery cell capacity that we're seeing out of this 2.4 terawatt hours of batteries that are coming out in the next 10 years will be going towards electric vehicles. Our bull case is that it actually would end up being 50-50 split between the two. Now, what would need to happen for that bull case to be true? First of all, if the 2.4 terawatt hours is fixed, then the immediate assumption is vehicles are using less of that proportion of that fixed number, and they would do so if autonomy catches on very quickly. And the other tailwind for utilities is that they're seeing that solar plus storage, wind plus storage is cheaper than their traditional forms of energy generation right now. What is stopping greater uptake from happening of battery cells, lithium-ion battery cells in utilities today is the cash flow generation timeline for utilities far longer than that of vehicles. And so considering that lithium-ion batteries have been these growth businesses that have been focused on pushing the dollar per kilowatt hour cost as low as possible, and they're now shifting into more of a profitability and cash flow generation focus, the battery cell companies have been more attuned towards building capacity for vehicles first and utilities second. But if we see that the number of vehicles is going to level off because of the uptake in autonomy and the improvements in autonomy software, then that frees up more of that capacity to go towards the utilities who are very hungry for the lithium-ion battery cells themselves. Now, I can't speak in depth about what it's going to take for autonomy to get to that level. And to be frank, Sam, I'm, you know, I would look to you to tell me more about that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Simon and Vivas, for joining us today. I guess, where can we follow Benchmark Mineral Intelligence and how can we follow each of you individually? Yeah, so Benchmark, you can, you can find us at BenchmarkMinerals.com, at BenchmarkMin, M-I-N, at, on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Me personally on Twitter, I love it. I'm on at S D Moores. Simon S for Simon D for David Moores. Vivas, what are you? You're something something obscure, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm on Twitter at Vivas, V-I-V-A-S, V-K7. And then anybody can add me on LinkedIn. Great. Thanks for joining. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Sam. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.